This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, April 19th, the P-Tape edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. And in the New York studios today, we have the lonely Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. What's going on? You know, friends are happening here on our end, because <laughs> I have someone with me in the studio, Christina Cotarucci, a writer for Slate. Hi, Christina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where is June? At Homeland, I think. Yeah, she's somewhere. I think she's on a bus trip in England, if I remember correctly. Oh, so this is the annual pilgrimage the to annual, Homeland. Yes, then. pilgrimage. Excellent. Well, we miss her. She'll be back next week. Um, all right. So what do we have to announce this week, except that Cardi B is pregnant and has a new album. So there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What have you done this week? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what have you done? Um, Beyonce, Beachella. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what about that is the problem with Beyonce and Beachella is that I, we can't watch it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you can. Review. There are ways. <laughs> there. Are, I really want to watch it. And I just found like a little thing here and a little thing there. But I was just settling in for the two hours and I couldn't find it. Anybody want to enlighten me? I think there's, I mean, I've seen a bunch of sort of postings that looked quasi-legal. Um, <laughs> but so if you, I haven't watched the whole thing. I, too, have just watched clips. But um, from what I understand, the, the quasi-legal postings that I've seen contained the entire two hours. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can secretly quasi-send me a quasi-link <laughs> later so I can quasi-watch it tonight. That would be awesome. Uh, so there's that. And then there's all the wonderful listeners who wrote us in about babies. It's uh, remarkable how many people are going down this road. Like we got a letter from Alex, an email from Alex saying, if parents can just stop going with the default and give it a little thought beforehand. Maybe some of the hurt and confusion I see in families when the child comes out as trans or non-binary can be minimized. Uh, but I was heartened to see what seemed like a kind of difficult and radical experiment. It made it seem just like a lot more, you know, every day from all the people who wrote about it. So thank you. All right, let's jump into our topics. First, we have the Donald Trump P-tape. Is it real? What does it mean? And why do we care? Second, we have the black-white divide in infant and maternal mortality. It reveals alarming things about racism and our healthcare system. We have a guest today who wrote a wonderful story in the New York Times Magazine about this, who's going to be on our show. Third, Describe yourself as a male author would. Thousands of women respond to a Twitter call to do just that with hilarious results we discuss. And then, Noreen, you want to say what we're going to talk about in our Slate Plus segment? We are going to talk about whether it is sexist to poke fun at Brad Pitt's new alleged paramour, an MIT design professor named Neary Oxman. Okay, if you're not a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash xxplus and become one. All right, so let's jump in. Our first segment is about a P-tape. Oh, well. So <laughs> former <laughs> FBI director Jim Comey has been making the rounds on his new book, arguing that President Trump may not be impeachable, but he is morally unfit to be president. One bit of evidence that popped up is the infamous P-tape. 
that originally popped up in an intelligence document. And it's an unverified claim that Trump paid prostitutes in 2013 to pee on a Moscow hotel bed where Barack and Michelle Obama once slept. Here's our high-minded presidential discussion these days. I'm interested in all the inferences that are made in here, the connections that are unspoken about moralness and what Trump is actually doing. But before we get to that, let's just lay out what we know about the P-tape. So either of you want to jump in, where did we first find out about it and what are the specifics anybody we found out about it in uh well in the in christopher Steele's dossier which was published by buzzfeed i I, I vividly remember being like it was winter and i was like so sad about the trump administration and it was dark outside and then like a ray of light this hilarious news story came onto my (laughs) twitter feed the p tape (laughs) it was just kind of amazing go on go on though the whole point is was supposed to be that, you know, that Trump could be blackmailed, that it, there was a potential that Russia had what they call compromat, yes. I guess, if I'm pronouncing With a K. that correctly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I think is such a beautiful word for a compromising material that you could use to blackmail someone with. Which they do all the time. Like, mm-hmm. if you Google compromat, you will find lots and lots of examples of Putin. That's how he got his political leg up. Like, they just, just a thing. So that's ostensibly why we should why America should care about it. But really, why most people care. And I think this is probably the what most people associate free associate when they hear steel dossier, they think, you know, P tape, which it's not necessarily people, you know, sex workers urinating on Donald Trump, but him watching two or more sex workers urinate on each other and a bed. Um, Well, I realized only recently that I had in my head categorized it as a sexual thing. And it's not, I don't know if it's a sexual thing. It's like P, it's like P. It could have been an accident. Voyeurism (laughs) or something. (laughs) It's not exactly. Isn't isn't that about sex? I don't. I think it, it's. I think it's inherently sexualized in I think this it situation. Is too. First and foremost, because he, you know, they were sex workers, but also because, you know, when you're watching people pee, you don't just do it for because it's, you know, an interesting visual. You do it because you're eroticizing them or you're toilet yeah. training them or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are elements in. Piss play, pee play. I'm not sure what the sexy so way tentative. to say pee sounds like. Because if you say pee play, it sounds like a little kids. And so I'm sure that like in circles that yeah, I think you know, piss is the piss appropriate word play for it. Must be the appropriate word, though we don't say that in the mainstream newspapers because we say pee, which sounds like what you do in the sandbox to annoy your mother or whatever. Because well, like, so people think it's it, funny. It's there's something like. The choice of calling it the P tape is a way of like making fun of and like distancing ourselves from what like is actually happening and like what it tells us about the tastes of our president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The tastes of our president and how we should judge them. alleged the topic taste. we have to discuss <laughs> alleged taste. So if if you want to know the details, you should read Russian Roulette, the Isikoff and Corn book, or listen to an interview with them. They really do get into the details of how plausible this P incident is. Piss incident is like he was in the 
Moscow hotel room only between 1 and 6 a.m. So there's like a tiny window when this could have happened. And when he was hanging out with his Russian friends in Las Vegas, they happened to have gone to a club where piss play was a thing. Like they all but went not to necessarily see this. on the night they were there. Not necessarily <laughs> on the night they were there. So like it is if you want to if you're a person who wants to get into the weeds, it is possible to do that. Um, so, 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 so let's just say, I guess the thing that, that sticks in my head is the inferences about morality. Can we just talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute? Like, like nobody says specifically, well, I mean, Jim Comey says almost specifically, like if my wife thought there was, cause, cause Donald Trump said, I just, there's. I don't want Melania to think that this is true. Or there's a ninety nine percent. He said, "Oh, if, doesn't if there's a one percent chance that Melania will believe this? I don't want that." To which Jim Comey replied, "Like, I would I would be horrified if there was even a one percent chance that my wife believed this." But I don't know. Is there something judgy, judgy underneath all this that we should examine? I think there's two things that people can judge. First, that. Trump was hiring prostitutes or consorting with prostitutes while he's married to Melania. And the second is the what we'll call piss play, which uh, I think, you know, in the public discourse, so to speak, it's been portrayed almost completely in a mocking tone. Like, can you believe someone would do this? How disgusting. Which, you know, there are obviously plenty of people out there who enjoy piss play and it's it's a harmless and, you know, if it's consensual, it's great. Uh, and I do think that there is uh, a sense that this would be really embarrassing to Trump. And so that feels good because so little can make him feel shameful that that the knowledge, the public knowledge that he has paid somebody to pee on a bed would might be one of the few things that could embarrass him. Oh, that is interesting because he does say, oh, I'm a germaphobe. I would never do this. He does seem to have anxiety over this that he did not over the Hollywood access tape. Right. Like he was like totally whatever about that tape. But this seems to be a thing that for whatever reason, either it's Melania, either he is a germaphobe, but he has these little moments when he's not that he doesn't want anyone to <laughs> well, know he, about. He wasn't interacting with the pee. So maybe watching people pee, if if he did that, was a way to sort of approach his or confront his germophobia without touching any germs. Hmm. Well, I think he just, you know, this is outside of what's considered to be the norm, right? That's just fully his reaction, I think, is embarrassment, right? Like, he sleeps with a couple of, um, you know, with a porn star and a Playboy Playmate. That's just like a American, red-blooded American man being a red-blooded American mm-hmm. man. And he does something that's like not on the menu for, I would say, the majority of, of you know, heterosexual couples. Then, like... You know. But it is for gay couples. <laughs> well, no, I don't. I don't. Well, I have in my Wait. mind Corey Sika, the styles, um, the the editor of the style section of the New York Times, had a very funny tweet where he was sort of shaming everyone for our. Um, prissiness about the pissiness and he was, yeah, that was, he was a good tweet. sort of like this is like among the like least crazy things that like people can can do with each other and I thought that was sort of like a good point like you know people human beings like interact with urine all of the time right granted usually it's our own uh granted it's not in a sexual uh kind of venue usually but there is something kind of like uh 
prissy, truly prissy about like the way people on the left are reacting. And I am really struck by it. So Michelle Goldberg, who's a great columnist for The New York Times, had this had this column that basically took it as, as its premise, like, ew, Donald Trump is gross because like he may have done this thing. Right. And there is this moment where like the left, I think, has become um the 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 uh, culture of sexual purity in a way that it did not used to be right. Like on the one hand, there is this total acceptance of all things, uh, you know, gender exploratory and sexually exploratory within certain contexts. But when it comes down to it, people on the left are like, you know, um, moralizing in this moment in a way that is is like a real flip. But that's a broad stroke. Do you really think that it's moralizing or it's just because it's Donald Trump? It's like a weird blind spot. Um, I, I, I mean, I think both, right? Like, for sure, Donald Trump, there's this gleeful thing where, you know, I've talked about this before in this podcast, where like people on the left make fun of his appearance in a way that we wouldn't if it were someone else. And it's like, right, hi- hi- hypocritical. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. But if you just look at the left more broadly, I mean, not just sexually, but in terms of like, you know, diet and exercise, there's this like, monkish um, sort of refusal on the left that that is happening all over. And, you know, um, you know, I hesitate to sort of draw the comparisons with what's happening with me too, because that is such a positive thing. But but it is certainly the case that um, there is not a sexual permissiveness on the left in the way that there has been in previous generations. I would say I have one more thing to say about this. So uh, Jim Comey said, you know, I think Hannah, you mentioned this. You know, when Trump said, if there's even a one percent chance Melania thought this, that would be horrible, and Comey said that he was thinking, well, you know, I'm a flawed human being, but there is a zero chance that my wife would ever think that I could do that. I mean, I think there's a 1% chance almost anyone could do almost anything. Yeah. Like, the men I know, the, like, prissiest, most vanilla, like, uh, play-by-the-rules kind of guys, maybe not a 1% chance, but there's probably at least a 0.1% chance that they could hire two sex workers to pee on a bed in Moscow. You know, I think, and I'd like to hear where James Comey's wife comes into all this, because he (laughs) says that she thinks there's a zero chance he could do that, but who knows what she thinks. Yeah, also he's always posing. Like, I feel like there's a 70% chance that Jim Comey could be doing anything because he's always (laughs) taking a public (laughs) position. Like, even on his Twitter feed, like, staring off into the distance with the road in the background, or like, I'm a very moral guy. Like he's always posturing as somebody in a very forceful kind of way. So what's actually going, he doesn't strike me as the most like gritty, you know, you know, you get what you see kind of guy. Like who knows what's going on there? Yeah, there's no middle ground between like staring at a Washington monument and like you know, watching uh, prostitutes piss on each other in a, mo- <laughs> in a Moscow hotel room these days. Like, it might be more related than you think. <laughs> you're one or the, right, exactly. Yeah. But like in public, you're one or the other. And you're, you know, you, yeah. there's no gray area for human beings. I was thinking about that. Like, I was thinking, have I ever had an important insight while staring at a Washington monument? <laughs> Which seems to be all of Comey's insights. <laughs> I don't think so. Probably zero times. 
Uh, anyway, listeners, if you have any thoughts about piss play that you feel have been squashed or not accurately represented in our very limited public conversation about our president and piss play, please share them with us. We love to hear them. <laughs> Double X Gapfest at Slate.com. Seriously, like we just, you know, you can't know enough about piss play unless you know a lot. So send us your thoughts. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's go to our next topic, Black maternal and infant death. Black infants and mothers are dying at alarming rates. The disparity between black and white babies and mothers is growing, and the U.S. is one of the few countries where pregnancy-related deaths are up from 25 years ago, largely because of black women. The statistics are actually amazing when you lay them out. And we're laid out by Linda Villarosa, who runs the journalism program at City College of New York and who's a contributing writer for the New York New York Times Magazine and had an amazing story in the New York Times Magazine this week about it. Hi, Linda. Thanks for coming Hi. on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm curious, what started you down this path? Like, did you read a story? Did you did you just notice the statistics one day or was it a personal situation? Okay, this is so crazy and you'll appreciate this. So I play on this recreational soccer team <laughs> and there's a woman from the Center for Reproductive Rights who is on the team, you know, on the pickup team that we play on the weekends. So she had been trying to tell me about this and I'm like, you know what? I kind of just want to play soccer. I don't want to talk about work. Um, this is really, like, awkward. Can you please? And I was also working on a, another story about HIV AIDS, and I was really deep into that. And then when I finished that, I started thinking, what was Katrina saying about maternal mortality? What, what were those statistics that did seem, now that I'm focusing in, that did seem kind of crazy? So she introduced me to a group called um, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is a combination of Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Organization, and the Center for Reproductive Rights. And they had been doing work on this. In fact, they testified before the UN because when they, when they found these statistics, they were so horrified that it became a human rights issue. And actually the U.S. was, I mean, I was going to say sanctioned, but more like scolded, by the UN because of these disparities. Now, what can you just lay out? So for someone who hasn't read it or doesn't know anything about it, what is the number that just kind of like jumped up at you and you were like, okay, that's crazy. Like that one is crazy. Well, that black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And um, what's worse is, I mean, I'm, it's, it's all bad, but what really struck me is that it, um, it stays in place across class lines. So a black woman with a college education or more, actually an advanced degree, is more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So some of the, you know, so usually the knee-jerk thing to say would be, oh, it's, you know, only poor black women who don't have access to prenatal health care, who aren't taking care of themselves, blaming them, blaming them. But actually, no, this isn't that. And it um, stays in place across class lines. And it also mirrors what's been going on in infant mortality. So a black woman, the similar statistics, 
um, black babies are much more likely to die, 2.2 times more likely to die than white babies. And again, it stays in place across class lines. And the, the, dispar- the racial disparity is actually larger in 2018 than it was in 1850 when black women were, wow. most black women were slaves. Sounds like, okay, that, <laughs> something Yeah, that's insane. Here. That's yeah. insane. That's insane. I mean, that's the one that got me where I was like, this huge hole opened up. It's like, well, it's not access to health care. It's right. not nutrition. You know, it's not all the obvious things that you that would affect a pregnancy if you don't have any money. Um, it seemed like a whole different thing and then opens up this huge gaping hole. So, like, what is it, you know? Well, my contention is is that, you know, some of this is due to, you know, I think hospitals really need to um, fix their protocols, especially around um, hemorrhaging. And so it was so funny. I was watching Grey's Anatomy, and they had this whole thing about the, you know, how to uh, manage a, a woman who is hemorrhaging. I was like, boy, this has really hit the popular culture. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but even when California fixed its um, hemorrhaging protocol. So it, you know, had doctors all be in line and know exactly what to do when a woman is hemorrhaging during childbirth. The, and so the numbers dropped. So fewer women died. However, um, the disparity between black and white women didn't change. So it was like, okay, that, isn't, that didn't fix the whole problem. Um, and then I think because it took me so long to write the story, um, what happened to Serena Williams came into the public eye. And so I got to add that to my piece. And so Serena Williams, um, in September, the birth of her first child was marred because she had a pulmonary embolism. And so when she tried to tell her doctors at a really fancy hospital in Los Angeles what was going on, they ignored her. And she had had it before. She was gasping for breath, and they were basically discounting what she was saying. And then finally, someone paid attention to her. They, you know, helped her. I don't remember what the medication was, but they, you know, treated her. Then she went home. She had had a C-section, and it turned out that her C-section scar burst, and she had to go back to the hospital, and she ended up, like, really sick for, you know, really debilitated for almost six months. And so when a woman like Serena Williams is being ignored, something's wrong. Something is wrong with the system. Linda, one thing that really struck me about the research in your piece was that, you know, I know people of different races and ethnicities can sometimes have different predispositions to to medical issues and diseases, but this was really a result of the of socially constructed race of of the effects of racism and not genetics. Can you explain a little bit about the research that proves that this is actually racism? Uh, putting black mothers and infants at risk and not just, you know, something in the genes? Well, it was very interesting because, um, I guess, in the 90s, in the 90s and 2000s, there were these two um, doctors out of Chicago, and they started looking at, was there a gene, because now everything else has been discounted, so was there actually a gene that women of African descent had that was making, you know, causing these problems, and it was, you know, especially in infant mortality. So they looked at women who came from, poor countries in Africa, and it was mostly West Africa. So the first generation of them, when they had their children, they were born at normal birth weight, equal to white women. And so so that was 
fine, but then they stayed with them. So then by the second generation, two generations later, their babies started looking like African-American babies, low birth weight. And so low birth weight and preterm births are the, the reasons why, you know, lead, can lead to infant mortality. So then it was like, okay, this is not <laughs> a genetic thing because about being black. It's something about being in the United States and a person of color. One of the things that really struck me in your piece was another statistic, which is that um, women, African-American women who give birth in their teens are less likely to be affected by this than women in their 20s. And in your 20s, you're, you're of a you know really healthy age to have a baby normally. Um, and so this is perhaps proof of, of what's called weathering. Can you explain what weathering means in this context? So um, weathering is a, a term coined by this wonderful researcher out of Chicago um, named Arlene Geronimus. So Arlene is, I don't know, probably in her 60s, but she started this work when she was a, she was a student at undergrad at Princeton, and she was volunteering at a, like a, teen, a high school for teen unwed, unwed mothers. And so she would go to the doctor's appointments with them, and she'd see them, you know, naked. And so she'd say, my God, you know, their bodies don't look so good, especially, and she was the same age as them. And so she was looking at them saying they they look like they're aging just in her head. So she started looking into this, and, you know, she's an excellent researcher. And so she ended up finding out that teen teen pregnant mothers – um, were not the ones whose babies died. It was later in life, you know, I mean, in their 20s and 30s, when the bulk of infant mortality was happening with black women, which was opposite for white women. And so she, her deduction was that um, the effects of weathering on the body caused by race took a toll as time passed. And so that's why, you know, slightly older black women were the ones who you know, had the bulk of infant deaths, in, which was the opposite of white women. And so when she put this, first put this research out, people were so evil to her. They sent death threats. They said, oh, you're just encouraging black teen pregnancy. And, you know, it's, I mean, everyone attacked her. And so in 2006, she put out another um, study that was really much more detailed, and it went beyond birth to other health problems. And it turned out that weathering was affecting many other systems of the body, including the heart. And so she is, and, you know, right now her, her research is very highly valued, but, but, you know, at the beginning she really was not believed and she was actually, you know, treated badly. But what is, yeah, what is, is weathering racism? No, like so, what is okay, weathering? Let me, let me break it down because my editor made me break it down <laughs> 10 times. I was back and forth on email with poor Dr. Geronimus who, thinks I'm an idiot, but she, um, so weathering, and this is why she coined the phrase, because she said weathering can be both the, what happens to the body um, as a result of racial insults. So it's kind of like the flight, you know, fight or flight syndrome. So when something happens to you that upsets you, then, or, you know, and it puts your body in actual danger. So your heart rate speeds up and, you know, your body kicks into action. A bunch of the systems, your neurological system kicks into place. And that is great, except when it keeps happening over and over. So if you are the target of a bunch of racial insults throughout, you know, your life and often, 
like you can feel it. You feel yourself getting upset. You know, when you get when you're upset, you're, you get red. You're you know, purple, whatever color skin color you are. You get really upset. And so, if you keep kicking your body into this high gear over and over again, it actually wears down the systems of your body, and that is what she called weathering. So she described it as like how a how the you know the ocean weathers a rock. But also, you know, resiliency, how a house would weather the storm. And so weathering really is your body kicking into gear too many times, and it raises, you know, all your systems are kicked into gear, and it really leads to illness. And what's really terrible is part of what I'm finding out is that black people may just be the canaries in the coal mine. So there was a study a few years ago, it was in Iowa, so it was this horrible ice raid, okay? So, and it was all you know, Latinos working in this huge factory, and they just, it was the ugliest thing. They, they raided, people lost their jobs, people's families were split up in 2008. In 2010, they looked at birth records, and all of a sudden, the babies were smaller of Latinas, and they all around where the raid happened. So race is just, you know, this is what ha- has happened to black people, but as you know, people are treated badly in whatever way, you're going to start seeing more and more, low, I think, more and more low birth babies. And, and more and more health effects that we're not even seeing because it's not measurable it, in the same way. Exactly. Yeah. But now people are paying attention to it and saying, wait a minute, we need to look at health, the health effects of ill treatment. And, you know, because that really is important. And it's something that is new and it hasn't been studied as deeply as it should have. And this kind of, to me, is, uh, it it's, depressing. And it was hard to feel hopeful after reading your piece um, because it it doesn't seem like, I think you put it, it's not the sort of lean-in stress relieved by meditation and me time. It's not the kind of thing that, oh, when you're pregnant, just try to take a bubble bath. Oh, actually, I guess you're not supposed to take a hot bath when you're pregnant anyway. But, (laughs) you know, it's not the kind of thing where you can just do deep breathing and, you know, smell some essential oils. It's it's the embodied experience of racism that, you know, short of solving racism, there's not an easy fix. But I mean, in your piece, you talk a lot about doulas as one possible way to mitigate the the poor health outcomes of black mothers and babies. Can you talk about what what gives you hope about these doula collectives that are popping up in cities around the country? You know, what's really beautiful about them is that they really are, you know, driven by social justice and driven by birth justice and, and reproductive justice. So that is really wonderful because, you know, these are really, I was calling them the woke doulas because they are trying to, you know, help women who can't afford it um, beginning in pregnancy, through childbirth, and then after childbirth. And um, the doula that I met, Latona Giwa, started her um, birthmark doula collective because she was, and she's a nurse, a labor and delivery nurse, but she was so frustrated by what was going on that she preferred to be a doula so that she could help become the bridge between sort of our highly technical medical um, industrial complex and um, real people. And real people were coming in ill scared, you know, afraid to talk back, being treated badly. And so she, you know, her collective works with um, women of means, they pay full freight, and then they pay for, um, you know, that covers the women that they 
um, work with for no cost. And someone like Simone Landrum, the woman, uh, the main, I'm using quotes, character in the story, who had been through every terrible thing in her life, including the death of a baby and her near death in childbirth, needed someone there to help her understand everything that was going on, to be her advocate, and actually to be her friend, to drive her home from the hospital, to have food ready for her when she got home, sometimes to take care of her other children. And so I see doulas as, I mean, angels, the, you know, the good ones, they work so hard, they don't make a lot of money, it is not very organized, you know, they're in collectives, but why aren't they why isn't this something that we value higher? Latona Giwa made $600, and believe me, she is still right there with that mom because um, maternal mortality, the actual definition is anyone who dies a year after the birth of your baby. So, you know, she, I think she feels really responsible for this woman. And, but, you know, the best of the doulas really, really put their all into it. And I was so impressed with um, the work she did, and I've met a lot of doulas now, and I think it's just really what is necessary right now. All right. Well, let's end on that teeny tiny hopeful note. Um, (laughs) But everyone should go out and read Linda's story. It's the cover of the New York Times magazine, Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis. It's an amazing piece of journalism. And thank you, Linda, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Let's move on to our next topic, the male authors. A couple of weeks ago, the writer Whit Reynolds challenged her Twitter followers to describe yourself as a male author would. It was a truly brilliant challenge because thousands of people did, and they were uncannily good at it. I have to say in a way that disturbed me, like how how easily women were able to like inhabit the male mind and sort of see themselves in this excruciating critical gaze was was almost too much. So why don't we read a couple of our favorites? Does anyone have one drawn up that they can read? Well, there was one joke that people sort of made over and over again, which seemed to be a sort of like Philip Roth, John Updike kind of, you know, um, send up, which was just like the emphasis on breasts, just that that would be the only thing a man would notice. Um, So, you know, one of them was... She wasn't perfectly thin nor voluptuously curvy, but what she lacked in general body shape, she more than made up for with her breasts. Um, <laughs> or another one. This this one is like clearly a late stage meta version of this, but most men would have noticed her bosoms, but I, an intellectual, saw her real appeal, the butt. Um, <laughs> this other one was great. Was She was angry but made up for it by having breasts. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I love that one. Yeah. Well, my actual favorite, which like I think was a, really well done one Um, because this is the kind of thing that you would read and like not pause over immediately as sexism but clearly is Um, by Lydia uh, is it Kiesling? Um, No that was great. um, She had the quick compensatory mind of a woman who was not quite beautiful but appeared so after a few drinks when the light was just so and the bird song in the trees echoed across the chasm between her face and true beauty. (laughs) (laughs) That was 
to. That's what I'm saying. Do you understand why I'm disturbed by how good women are at this? <laughs> I think men would be very bad at it. And women are just like uncannily good both at seeing themselves with a kind of like just cruel accuracy and seeing themselves through the male mind. I don't know. It felt to me like just kind of years of evaluating your own flaws and how other people <laughs> might see them would produce such beautiful writing. Yeah. When I first started reading them, I thought like, oh, these are so ridiculous and over the top. Like, you know, no man would actually write something like this unless he was writing erotica or even like female writers of erotica would describe women like this. But then there were a couple pieces. I think um, Katie Waldman wrote a really good one in The New Yorker um, where they actually included some great, you know, classic descriptions of these much like vaunted male authors describing women in their masterworks. And yes, they did describe women by like whatever their breasts happened to be doing at the moment when the main character came across them. And so after I realized that this was actually true, I think I probably read too many women authors to realize how prevalent this is. But then I started to enjoy them a lot more. Well, I had sort of a, a different realization, which was like, oh, I absorbed a lot of this. Like I've I've read a lot of this and maybe the ways that I think about my own body, it's like filtered as much or more through this than through like, um, you know, Hollywood visions, which seemed like totally foreign. But there's something about the way that these are written. It's like evaluative and perceptive or it seems that way mm. more than like a just a, you know, a Quentin Tarantino version of a woman. So like here's here's a Saul Bellow quote. For my own amusement, sometimes I think of her part by part. One breast is smaller than the other, like junior and senior. Her pelvic bones are not well covered. She's a little gaunt there, but her body looks gentle and pretty. Right? Like it's just like fully just about her body, but it's a close read. <laughs> So it's a close read that makes you feel what? Like it makes you feel like the woman is being observed. So there's some comfort in the is being observed. No, it's not comfort. It's seen, but she's seen only through a very narrow lens. Right. I think the attention to detail is what can be unsettling to women, right? That like the the, uh, disproportionate focus on certain stuff along with a clearly observant eye. Or no, you're not Mm -hmm. clearly observant. Maybe... You know. I'm also disturbed that we're supposed to be drawing conclusions about somebody's character based on, you know, how their clavicle looks and how certain parts of them jiggle and move as they walk. Um, and it reminded me of uh, when I was watching The Sopranos a couple years ago. Um, I would ha- I had this moment where like a woman would come on screen and there aren't a ton of women on that show and I would immediately know like oh Tony's going to sleep with that woman like a brand new character <laughs> and then I kind of realized like that really I have been trained to see not only culture but the world through men's eyes like everything I've been exposed to or most things I've been exposed to in my life especially in my formative years were refracted through men's judgment right because even when it's good like even when it's particular and beautifully written it still is through men's particular judgment i was thinking about how people speak differently about the kind of the mid-century the kind of john updike philip roth sort of those are the novelists that come up a lot and that's the novelist in asymmetry which is the best response to this conversation that could possibly Mm -hmm. happen it's the novel 
Noreen, both you and I recommended, which starts with a Philip Roth-like character um, and and then is essentially a novel about inhabiting somebody else's perspective. It's like a rebuke to the men in a certain way, but a, but but it's loving. It's not like a sharp rebuke to the men because she fully inhabits and portrays a male character um, in a way that feels real and alive. And by the way, I don't think she physically describes the male character um, at least the the male author in that, do I or I don't recall mm-hmm. it. It's so much a description of his personality and his his being, you know, and his anxiety of the mm-hmm. moment and his family and the things that he's suffering. Right, exactly. So my question though was like there the, the the distinction that wasn't made is the distinction between the problem now, the way men do that, male novelists do this now, because I don't think it's the same, and the way the kind of updike Roth. And I don't know why no one mentions Norman Mailer, who's really the worst <laughs> offender in certain ways, um, and the way it's done now. Like, there's a hesitation around doing – there's a hesitation around engagement. Like, what I did to prepare for this topic is I, 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 I asked my friends who they thought was the worst violator, my friends who are you know read a lot. It was Norman Mailer, and I went back and read The Time of Her Time, which if any of you haven't read it, it's, it's essentially a story of just like a straight-up sexual conquest of this Jewish woman, and there's this – there's this sort of cuckolded husband in the background. But the way Mailer engages, it's like a gender war. You know, it's like he is explicitly crushing the woman in this novel. And he, you know, it's got all the tropes, like he's just come back from bullfighting, you know, it has all the sort of, but I feel like it's a conscious battle in a way that is easier to read, like easier to hate, easier to read, easier to understand. And both people are fighting, even though he's winning because he controls the narrative. So it's like he's the male novelist, he controls the narrative. Whereas now it's like a lot of tiptoeing. And I just can't, you know, like it's people like I was, (laughs) can I read to you guys? um, So the guy who wrote The Martian just wrote a new novel. And somebody, and it's a novel that stars a woman, and somebody picked out all of the most ridiculous passages, which are kind of respectable, respectful, like his, his attempts to speak from inside a woman's mind. I giggled like a little girl. Hey, I'm a girl, so I'm allowed. I had to be a big girl just for one minute. Wait, this I didn't is have real? Like it. This is real no, no, I'm reading you actual lines from the book. <laughs> oh I was God. a helpless, exposed girl with no <laughs> weapons. Uh. Um, and, and I threw off my clothes like a drunk prom date. Okay, so this is just bad writing at some <laughs> level. <laughs> we are just doing bad writing. But what struck me is like he's trying, he's trying, he probably like The Martian was like a dude fantasy novel. You know, it's all about like its scientific particularity and it has a dude hero. So here he's trying to create this novel with a heroine. He's trying to, you know what I mean? There's this sort of like, I'm going to be a good feminist. Like I want to inhabit the female perspective. And this is what happens. So I just don't know what to do about that. I don't know. In some ways, I guess that I found myself alarmingly preferring the Norman Mailer mode of engagement, which was so like, fuck you, I'm in charge, that you kind of knew what was happening. It didn't have this like politeness Mm. around the gender things have you guys read um, the love affairs of nathaniel p it came out a few years ago. yeah that's a yeah so it's written by a woman but it's from the perspective of like a male brooklyn literary type and it's in some ways like a, a novel length version of, of this kind of thing where women are satirizing what men think of them and i just you know the the descriptions that adele waldman has of her female 
um, the main female character just will always stick in my mind. She sort of like talks about the way that her, you know, that her butt looks in her jeans, but it's not like a like, um, you know, like it looks like a peach kind of thing. It's it's just sort of like <laughs> she's she has the male character thinking about whether the pants are flattering or not and just where exactly mm-hmm. they hit and the slightly too flatness of of the butt. And and it was just such a like good way of of um, showing just how insidious that kind of observation can be. I guess that's what I was trying to get at before. It's like someone who, you know, isn't doing the mailer thing like she's just a sex object. He's sort of like trying to like her for her mind, but he can't help but notice that the jeans aren't perfectly flattering and yet he pats himself on the back for liking her anyway there's this like it's just it's a really sort of genius look at that Mm -hmm. do you guys think that it's ever that it can ever be a good thing to describe a character with these sort of like nitpicking observations about their body parts i mean i i will always think of uh, Willa Paskin at Slate wrote a piece uh, in defense of lusty movie reviews. Mm-hmm. I didn't really agree with most of the piece, but I thought it was argued really well. And I guess I think that, you know, we do perceive the world a lot of times through sexuality. Uh, we we process people through their looks. Um, and it's helpful sometimes when you're reading in fiction and uh, to know what the what the character looks like and how other characters perceive them. I don't know. I don't always think it's it's outrageous to describe, like, the sensuality of a female character. I guess, you know, we talk about this at Invisibilia because in audio, you there's two... You know, there's two options. One is just leave the character to the imagination. Don't say a single thing about them as a physical presence. That's one option. And another option is to describe them. I mean, it's like that in writing, too. But with audio, you're getting a kind of intimate, you hear their voice. So it's like, do you want the person to imagine them or not? Hmm. Um, I think the thing that I think is it's sometimes extremely relevant and sometimes not. Like sometimes there's a particular physical detail or a way that someone presents themselves physically or a kind of explicitness about how someone presents themselves physically, like not just say she's hot or she's beautiful, <laughs> or if you're saying she's hot and her butt looks good in jeans, like it's clear that it's like what you're thinking about and not actually something particular about that character. Like it's it's hard to say physicality and sensuality are not important. They obviously are important in a way that we all read each other. It's just be super conscious about how you're doing it and how creative you're being when you're doing it so that it actually makes something come alive. Yeah, yeah, I think the precision is super vital, especially in fiction. Like, that's part of what was bad about the Martian guys, like, so sloppy right. in general. And I also do think it's different in fiction and journalism. Um, you know, it, it depends on the kind of story in journalism. Sometimes someone's physicality doesn't matter, but almost always if you're, you know, if you're really drawing a character portrait in a work of fiction, I would argue that you need it. There are also so many more. I mean, there have always been amazing female novelists, obviously, but there are more getting more attention. Like we don't have that such a distinction between um, the the great male novelist is a very difficult concept now. So I feel like, like I realized in, in preparing for this topic that I really just read a ton of female novelists these days. So, yeah, so I'm not just under that spell. I just want to say, by the way, that as reading around <laughs> the Jonathan Franzen one, mm-hmm. because it was mostly is Denise at 32 was still beautiful. That <laughs> always remains with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I always and remember now that from we, the corrections it's always good to be reminded where the Jonathan Franzen hatred comes from right yeah it's <laughs> it's always good to 
come back to that touchstone. It's such a small sentence, you know, um, and so egregious. I have a little surprise for you guys. All right. So um, on electricliterature.com, there is a what they call a handy chart slash generator of if you're not sure how a male author would describe you, just plug the first five letters of your name into this chart <laughs> and you'll find out. Well, I've already done it for you guys. So. Oh, awesome. Bring it. And for me. Okay. So Noreen, mm-hmm. she had memories like a tempestuous princess and I resolved to marry her. I think that every morning when I look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, yours is really good. She had eyes like a silken bedsheet, and I shuddered to ravish her. <laughs> shuddered to ravish And mine her. is kind of insulting, but I would be pleased if a lusty male novelist described me this way. She had a butt like a wrinkled princess, and I thirsted to ignore her. <laughs> <laughs> that, wow, what an insult. It's great because another thing I was thinking as I was scrolling through all these uh, Twitter responses, people were writing about themselves. When you describe yourself in a sexualized way, it can kind of sound like you're bragging. Like, totally. Oh my, I have such a pert bosom. And right. I was trying to write one for myself, and I'm like, I'm not. I had are my bosoms pert? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's either really insulting, like you have to waver between really braggy and really insulting. It's yeah. very hard to do. <laughs> yeah. So All it's right. nice to let this chart do it for you. <laughs> exactly. All right, listeners, if you have written good ones for yourselves, we would love to hear them. If you wrote one into the Twitter thread, if we get really super delicious ones, we will read them on our next show. All right, let's move on to our recommendations. Noreen, you go first. Okay, well, Hannah, I know that we sort of duked it out for this recommendation, so I'm going to go first and take it. Um, The documentary Wild Wild Country on Netflix is just amazing. It is this, at least to me, forgotten a bit of American history where a, um, a, I guess, religious organization would be the charitable thing to say, cult would be the more direct thing to say, um, from India moved to rural Oregon in the early 1980s and um, got in all kinds of disputes with the people there, some of which might be expected, um, and some of this them get increasingly crazy. So the, the organization is – has um, – has a sort of, uh, you know, guru at the center of it. He's for the first part of the documentary, he's very mysterious and distant. And the focus of the documentary is on this woman, Ma Anand Sheila, who is an all time great supervillain, I would say. Would do you think that's a fair characterization of her, Hannah? She is just like an amazing. Yeah, Christina loves it. I think she's a Christina loves super heroine. Super yeah. heroine. Well, okay. I would say, can I just put out there, I, I, you know, I didn't know if enough people had watched this for us to talk about it. There's something I've never seen. It is often written that women don't have cult followings or women don't make good cult leaders. And she is a counterexample. I mean, if an, if there's enough appetite, I would love to talk about her and what's different about her and how she operates. I've never seen – I can't remember a woman quite as charismatic and compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about it. These are things that happened 40 years ago that she's describing with a kind of presence mm-hmm. and kind of emotional resonance like they happened last week. I mean, she 
she's amazing. She's really an amazing character. Yeah. Um, and that name, that is really, you couldn't pick a more sense name Sheila. Okay, so she's fascinating, but I feel like I'm underplaying the bonkersness of the story itself, um, which yeah. I'm not quite to the end of this, and I keep being like, okay, now's the wind down portion. Don't give it away, though. And it, I know, Don't but it's, it it's ramping up every episode. It's just ramping up. And it's also just really cool to look at visually. They wear these... Um, uh, vibrant pink and red and maroon and uh, lavender sometimes outfits um, and there's all this you know found footage that just no one had done anything with so I could not more highly recommend Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Also beautifully produced like mm-hmm. it's just it has just the right kind of injection of camp like just when it's getting too serious they'll do something campy with the camera or the colors and um, anyway it's it's really really well done and they're so good at the cliffhanger and kind of knowing when to stop an episode it's really yeah. good. Really good. Yeah, so that's what's been giving me the most pleasure this week, if I'm most honest. But, you know, so a double recommendation. Triple, probably. Yeah, I also recommend it. I finished it um, a week or two ago. And I love that they... I love that they interviewed the people from the rural town in Oregon, the, you know, old white retirees, and then these... The people who were in the religious organization slash cult who all have kind of different perspectives on it now that they are a couple decades removed. Yeah. Yeah. Can okay, we gotta stop because because we can talk about her forever. But you know, it also has that Handmaid's Tale thing where like she's existing in a different decade, kind of because like the way all cults do, they're just kind of timeless. But then she'll just bring it to like I'm gonna fuck them in the you know what I mean? Yeah, she'll just, like, <laughs> yeah. bring it to the modern moment, like out of the blue. It's like the way they used to do like Namaste bitches on Handmaid's Tale, just <laughs> out of the blue. It's like really good. <laughs> Uh, only it's real. Okay, so my recommendation is a book called The Book of Joan by Lydia Yuknovich, because we were talking about women writing about women. She's almost exclusively writing about <clears throat> women having sex with women, but the way she writes about – she's been praised for her writing about sex in various places, um, The New Yorker and The Atlantic. She has a particular – like, it's a female gaze of a very particular kind. She is the counterpoint <laughs> to the Philip Ross and Norman Mailers of the world. Um, uh, very, 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 very dark and ap- apocalyptic, this book, but um, but really excellent. Christina? I would like to recommend season three of Unreal on Lifetime. Um, I'd never seen the show before, and I'm actually a little behind on this season. I've just seen the first few episodes. But um, in case you've never seen the show, the premise is uh, the show focuses on this woman who's the producer or a producer on a Bachelor-esque show. It's called Everlasting, where one man usually uh, gets to choose between, you know, 25 beautiful, pert-bosomed contestants. Uh, And on this show, on season three, they've got their first, what we would call bachelorette. For them, it's called a sutress instead of a suitor. Um, And I don't watch The the Bachelor or any other reality TV shows. They all kind of depress me. Um, But this is sort of, I think what I get out of this fictionalized show is what other people might get out of The Bachelor. It's really soapy. There's all this sort of like manufactured drama. And it's doubled because you get the drama happening like with the contestants on the show and then also the drama happening backstage with all the people running the show. There's so much backstabbing and making up and people making alliances with each other. Um, and at the 
two main leads are the two. It's led by two incredible women actresses, uh, Shiri Appleby, who I think should win an Emmy for this, uh, and Constance Zimmer, of whom I'm an amazing fan. And she is also a great Ma Nanshila-esque uh, supervillain slash superhero in this show. Um, it's I feel like I also sometimes watch um, Shonda Rhimes shows, and there's always monologues on those shows that kind of make me roll my eyes like no one would actually say that, and it's also cheesy. This show has some similar sort of monologues, but the acting is so incredible that it feels very real, and I find myself really invested in it. Um, and I love the way that this season, since they're having their first uh, you know, female whatever sutras, uh, they're talking a lot about how the like the show's gender politics and she's having trouble getting the men to like her, which is really not usually how it happens on these shows because she's this – they call her the female Elon Musk. She's so powerful. <laughs> and should she dumb herself down to make these men feel more comfortable? Um, she's Neri Oxman. She's like Neri Oxman. She's like a <laughs> TED-talking business. Yeah, woman, she's very similar. And she's like so good at poker and she wins and then none of the men want to hang out with her anymore. <laughs> so it's also a great showcase for um, the fragility of masculinity. Um and it it just lampoons the whole Bachelor franchise in such a perfect way while also delivering all of the pleasures of that kind of show. Yep. I think June is a big fan of that show, too. I loved season one, but then it lost me on season two. And now I'm going to go back. Yeah, you should. Season two, I agree, was terrible. And I'm glad that I made it through. <laughs> all right. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verilyn Williams, production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Please go on Apple Podcasts and rate the show. Tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. If you want to send us a message, you can go to at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen, at June Thomas, or at C underscore underscore <laughs> at C underscore Quattarucci to get in touch with Christina. That's our show for today. For Christina and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will see you again in two weeks. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.